hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. We have a great show for you this week. Let's lead off with Dan Ball and Real America. Welcome back. Oh, did you hear? It's time to roll up that sleeve again and take yet another jab that won't stop you from getting COVID. This according to Pfizer's CEO. Hmm, wonder why you would say something like that. Albert Burl, the boss over there. They're currently in the works of submitting data to the FDA that claims everybody's going to need a fourth booster shot. Let me get that right, sir. I did five. That was my brain probably jumping ahead, knowing that the fifth will be coming next, I'm sure. But anyway, it's a fourth for now. Watch. You've seen some of that data on a, on a fourth dose, a second booster shot. Mm-hmm. You think it will be necessary? It is necessary, a fourth boost right now. The, the protection that you're getting from the third, it is uh, good enough actually quite good for hospitalizations and deaths. It's not that good against infections, but doesn't last very long. How about if like an independent agency that had nothing to do with the drug companies that are making billions do the research and submit data to our government? And then those findings should be used on whether or not telling the American people we should take a fourth shot. I don't know. That's just me. I'm not a scientist or virologist. I don't know anything. I mean, I'm sure there's no conflict of interest that the findings, the research done by Pfizer and other drug companies that are making the money given to the CDC and the FDA, and then they base that on whether or not we should take one. You get my point. I'm sure there's no conflict of interest or corruption there. Meanwhile, we just told you a few weeks ago on this program that thanks to a Freedom of Information Act request, it forced Pfizer to start releasing documents on the side effects caused by the vax. And what did we find out as we looked through and combed through dozens and dozens of pages that there are hundreds and hundreds of side effects from the vax. But yeah, you should get in line right now and roll that sleeve up for the fourth jab, even though we don't have all the facts yet because, you know, it's going to take like 55 or 75 years to release all the findings. The growing trend of vaccinated athletic women is growing big time. They've been sidelined. Why? Because of blood clots. And this is sparking concern because what was one of the major side effects in those findings released by Pfizer? Blood clots. Now, a lot of these celebrities aren't jumping on the bandwagon, of course, and saying, I think it might have been because of the vax. But nonetheless, we'll report on it because these are way too odd similarities between the soccer players dropping, now you have golfers, volleyball players, you name it, young, healthy people, male and female, in their late teens, 20s, just boom, having blood clots or collapsing. But again, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the vaccine. So we'll just report what happened, shall we? (sighs) Golfer Nellie Korda, now recovering from a blood clot in her arm over the weekend. In a recent social media post, the only 23-year-old 23-year-old superstar, said that she was receiving treatment for a blood clot. And yes, she admits to being vaccinated. Now again, she's not drawing the conclusion, so I'll just state facts. The vaccinated player says over the weekend she had to be taken to the hospital when she felt severe swelling in her arm after a typical workout. 
Corda is now ranked the number two female golfer in the world, but now it's unclear if she's going to be able to actually compete in her next match, which is scheduled for March 31st, because again, of a blood clot. Meanwhile, the unexpected trend of blood clots in young people is finally drawing a little bit of attention, and it should, because here's another story for you. A very famous person, 25-year-old Haley Bieber, wife to the Biebs. Take a look. Blood clot. Yes, what's it say? Blood clots. Wow, Yahoo, you put this online? Blood clots like Haley Bieber's are happening in younger and younger people these days. Hmm. And what else did you report, Yahoo? Did you actually pull up those Pfizer documents that we did and report on it? Of course not. Justin Bieber got the scare of a lifetime when his wife, Haley, was hospitalized over this past weekend for a blood clot in her brain. In a statement, Haley said, quote, I was sitting at breakfast with my husband when I started having stroke-like symptoms. I was taken to the hospital immediately. They found I suffered a small blood clot to my brain, which caused a lack of oxygen, but my body had passed it on its own, and I recovered within a few hours. But scary nonetheless, right? Now, among all these similar cases, some medical experts say they are baffled. They're baffled at why young people would just start having blood clots all of a sudden. No reason. Hmm. As the COVID vaccination hysteria, let's call it that, continues across our country. Because it does. Because people still believe what Joe Biden and health officials last year told them. This is an epidemic and a pandemic of the unvaxxed, and if you don't get vaxxed, you're killing people, and you'll die, and blah, 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 blah. And they never talk about the side effects. And who's at the top of all this? Who's the guy that's been pushing this? The highest paid government employee on record. You know who that is. It's Dr. Fauci. Kentucky Senator, rather, Rand Paul, is now vowing to remove the dictator of medicine, Mr. Fauci, from the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Senator Paul says millions of Americans continue to question the science as Fauci dictates it. On Monday of this week, the senator introduced an amendment trying to hold Fauci accountable, proposing that he will be removed from his position. That's right. And then the power that he had in those institutes will be divided three ways. Senator Paul proposing the directors of three institutes be appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate for only five-year terms. That sounds reasonable. This, as the all-and-mighty Fauci, has now served, <laughs> this is insane, as the director at the NIAD since 84? Is that? Wait a minute. Is that right, guys? 84, not 94. It's been that long since that guy's been in charge. Just want to double-check that. Dr. Peter McCullough is a certified cardiologist and the host of the McCullough Report. You know him. I think you love him because he's one of the honest doctors out there talking about facts in science, reports that have been released due to Freedom Information Act requests. We want to welcome the doctor back to the program. Um, Doc, what do you make of this? A bunch of healthy young athletes, celebrities, uh, we're talking soccer, golf, volleyball, have been dropping with blood clots. But doctors are baffled, Doc. They don't understand why all of these young people, 19 to 20 so, male, female, are having this. Hmm. What do you think? Dan, the first question the patient and the doctor should ask is if they've had a COVID-19 vaccine. 
The COVID-19 vaccines have official warnings and now a deep literature, over a thousand peer-reviewed publications in the National Library of Medicine and the preprint server system showing the vaccines cause blood clots. And the part of the vaccine that causes it is the spike protein that's generated after the genetic material is installed into the human body. It promotes blood clots, no doubt about it. The FDA has warnings on blood clots in the brain uh, in women age 18 to 49 with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, for example. Uh, in the peer-reviewed published literature, uh, there is a case of a woman who takes the vaccine in the arm and develops an arm blood clot. The entire arm develops a blood clot, yeah. just as uh, described. It's had happened twice in my practice so far. There is a condition that athletes develop called thoracic outlet obstruction, uh, and it's because the space under the first rib is constrained, and especially in golfers, baseball pitchers, etc. So there may have been thoracic outlet obstruction, and then the superimposed thrombogenic effect of the vaccine causing the blood clot. That would be one possible and plausible explanation. But it's concerning now. We have a paper by Holtgen and colleagues showing the messenger RNA stays in the body 60 days. It's been found in lymph nodes. It stays in the body far too long. The spike protein is now believed to stay in the body uh, for over a year. And continued shots means continued accumulation of spike protein. We don't need Albert Bora on advertising more vaccines, Dan. We need him on explaining why are there 1,223 deaths that have occurred after the Pfizer vaccine in the first 90 days. That's what came out of the documents. Wow. See, folks, this is not this isn't what you're getting on mainstream media. You watch a CNN, you watch a ABC, NBC. They put the CEO of Pfizer on their network. They say you need a fourth shot. Everything's fine. They won't even discuss this documents that got released last uh, Monday, I believe, about the side effects, and that's just of one drug maker's drug. That's just Pfizer. We still don't have paperwork on Moderna, Johnson Johnson, and the others, right? This is just Pfizer so far that's been released. And they're, of course, the number one that the government has been pushing, making frontline workers, the military, uh, everyone take out there. It's primarily been the Pfizer vax. You know, it's interesting, these celebrities and these athletes that are having these issues, Doc, they're not coming out and pointing the finger and drawing conclusions. But if you go back on their social media timelines, you'll see them promoting and pushing when they got the vax. So I don't know if they're just too dense to put two and two together or if they're scared to admit it to the public and themselves that potentially this vaccine is what caused their blood clot. And again, Doc, I know you've said it and I'll say it again. I know millions of people have taken this around the world and no millions have not died from it but thousands and hundreds of thousands possibly millions have had side effects so why aren't we talking about that more and the only thing i can come to as a conclusion doc is what money it's true the influence uh that the pro vaccine agenda has had worldwide has been extraordinary. You know, two-thirds of people have taken the vaccine worldwide in the United States. There's about a third who have basically factored through this and uh, have come to the belief that the risks outweigh the benefits, and that's a fair analysis. Uh, but the, the first and foremost priority is safety. Yes. Our government, our FDA, the vaccine manufacturers, they must have safety in mind first. And when we have record numbers of deaths that are occurring after administration of the vaccine and known complications such as blood clots, myocarditis, neurologic injury, hematomologic injury, these are in the peer-reviewed published literature. It's not a debate. Uh, the vaccine is the proximate cause of these problems. Young people should be living their lives free of blood clots, free of myocarditis and injury and other problems. And right now, the vaccine, in a sense, has become a menace on their lives. Dr. McCullough, thank you for 
remembering your Hippocratic Oath and being a real doctor? I just love having you on the program because you're not afraid to say what needs to be said. Look, if you want to take the damn vaccine, take it, but it should be your choice. And you should have all the information provided by the manufacturer and your doctor up front before you decide to take that jab. That's all we're asking for, right? That's all you're saying. That's all I'm demanding. Sure. Where there's risk, there always should be choice. And and there will be those who are going to regret the vaccines. You know, our U.S. CDC VAERS system uh, internationally and domestically now, you know, it's, it's about a million people who have been injured by the vaccines. Now, that means a lot of people took the vaccines and they're fine. I think many of them are disappointed that they got COVID anyway. Uh, we know now there was a paper recently out from Paris in Annals Internal Medicine. You know, the majority of people who got Omicron, who got sick enough to go to the ER, they're vaccinated. And, and so these vaccinated people who are getting COVID anyway, they feel kind of burned. Uh, they feel duped and uh, and they're remorseful. Those who've, who've had vaccine injuries like blood clots, and sometimes it's not all solvable. I just finished with a patient today and I've had to put her on permanent disability because the blood clot has just absolutely damaged her leg. She just, she's not the same. And uh, it's been nearly a, it's nearly, you're nearly a year, Dan. So I can tell you the spike protein does last in the body a long time, promoting blood clotting and more damage. And now they want you to take a fourth, which will even prolong that even more. Ridiculous. Get informed, folks. And I know most of my viewers already are, and they probably have said no to it. Or even if they debated it, now they know the truth and they will turn away from it. Again, if you're healthy, you don't need it. Your immune system will fight COVID naturally and you'll make it through. Uh, And if not, seek a doctor like Dr. McCullough. And there's therapeutics out there. Of course, nobody in the mainstream wants to talk about that. But we're out of time. Everybody knows my, my stance on therapeutics. They work. Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much, always. Thanks. Folks, check out the uh, McCullough Report online as well. Great information. Thank you, Doc. You can tell that the media response, certainly the media that reach out to me, uh, tends to be quite favorable and complimentary. Now, I've had some more difficult interviews, uh, one with ABC News recently and one with uh, a UK documentary team and I still don't have the clips from them, uh, but I did have a terrific trip down to Austin, Texas, and visit with Dell Bigtree of the High Wire. Let's listen in. The doctor's oath is to do no harm. Uh, absolutely important that a doctor is only considering the patient right in front of them. How many deaths is okay? How many deaths by a vaccination are acceptable? Well, there are a lot of doctors getting passionate about this conversation. Uh, None more maybe than my next guest, Dr. Peter McCullough. This is him in a Senate meeting with Ron Johnson just a few weeks ago. I'm telling you as a specialist, myocarditis is not mild. There are papers by Shower and by now by Trong at University of uh, Utah at Salt Lake. When they do MRI on these individuals with suspected myocarditis, 100% are having heart damage. There is uh, the father of a boy here in this room who's died of myocarditis. One death, it's too many. One, one. We have 21,000 cases of myocarditis and climbing in the United States that the CDC has verified. One was too many. Under no circumstances, under any circumstances, should a young person ever receive one of these vaccines, let alone ever be pressured to receive a vaccine, let alone ever be mandated to take a vaccine. 
passionate um, and powerful testimony by Dr. Peter McCullough. That was at the Ron Johnson Senate hearing. Um, it is my honor and pleasure to be joined now by Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, first of all, we have had you Zoom in and Skype in, and, and I've, of course, been with you out um, speaking on stages, but uh, it is just so incredible to have you here inside the High Wire studio, so I want to thank you for making the trip in to, to talk with us today. Well, it's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. Um, I want to just start out with, take me back to, just from the beginning, what would your perspective, before COVID, before any of this happened, what is your perspective of vaccines and, you know, and medicine, you know, around that topic? Yeah, I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist. I'm trained as an epidemiologist and spend about half my time in clinical practice, half as an author and editor and a clinical investigator. Vaccines were really never in my academic scope, and I never questioned them, and my parents never questioned them. So as a child, I took the vaccines according to the schedule. And when I was asked to take one, I took one. Uh, my wife and I went to India a few years ago. We took, we went to the uh, public health department. We took additional vaccines. And, uh, you know, I had the general understanding that they were safe and effective mm -hmm. uh, and take them as offered. And I had the general understanding that they worked to suppress the recurrence of a disease like polio. Uh, that they work to suppress the frequency of a disease, like getting tetanus if I had a, a wound infection, and that they offered some personal protection. I think of the vaccine in my life that came in as a new entry that was meaningful was hepatitis B. Okay. So I trained during an era where we were unprotected from hepatitis B. So if I would have gotten a needle stick from a patient who had active hepatitis B, I could have contracted it myself. Uh, so that was my general understanding. Uh, we have a terrific program this week. I wanted to give you uh, some original music. Uh, people have taken their, a tremendous effort out of their time uh, to find music that's relevant. This came in from uh, Kevin Frank. Credit is given to Barbara Bruton, who may be in the background of this video in terms of putting this piece together. But let's take a uh, listen to this. This is Crying from the Ground.
that's crying from the ground, and that could be from anywhere in North America or across the world. Just looks like a family and friends together in somebody's living room, and they understand something is wrong, and they see the crying from the ground. The lyrics are powerful, and thank you so much for sending that in. We have a terrific program this week, and for the first time in long overdue, I bring the big guy to the program, Dr. Pierre Corey, who's been a fearless leader. Uh, He was the very first of the early treatment doctors to testify in the U.S. Senate in May of 2020 on the advent of corticosteroids for COVID-19. He gets enormous credit for his innovation, uh, for his uh, scientific integrity, and for his persistence in advancing the compassionate care to treatment. He's one of the founders of the Frontline uh, COVID Critical Care Network, along with Dr. Paul Merrick, who's been on the program before. And I asked Dr. Corey to go over the very beginnings on early treatment and how uh, there has been suppression of early treatment. He gives us some insights onto biases, as well as now censorship and corruption that's uh, crept into the medical literature in order to keep treatment from patients suffering with COVID-19. It's a powerful interview, and I think you'll like it. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is The McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is The McCullough Report. I want to put in a big word for healthy cell supplements. The GI tract is not functioning normally in long COVID syndrome. I'm convinced of it. There are multiple studies. We need a much better absorbed set of nutraceutical and vitamin products for long COVID syndrome, and that's Healthy Cell. They have an entire line that's safe and effective, uh, can help people through the long COVID syndrome. I found the best way to use Healthy Cell products is use them every day, not on and off, on and off. Take them every day consistently. The Immune Super Boost, Focus and memory and the REM sleep supplement all have powerful effects in long COVID syndrome. Go to HealthyCell.com and in the promo code, type in out loud for 20% off your first order. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Our invincible American spirit drives the most audacious experiment in the history of self-government. America Out Loud celebrates the American spirit every minute of every day. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's my great pleasure and actually distinct honor to invite one of the true American heroes to the McCullough Report. And you know, I'm coming up on a year of this program, 
And uh, it's amazing the people I've brought on. And people have asked me, where's Dr. Pierre Corey? And I said, <laughs> you know, I finally got him. Pierre Corey is the busiest guy in the world. Uh, Dr. Corey went to undergraduate at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And that's one of the top public universities in the United States. Got his degree in mathematics. He went on to St. George's University in the Caribbean, which is one of the fully credentialed um, uh, medical schools in the Caribbean. He then went to New York, St. Luke's Roosevelt, New York, which is a wonderful teaching hospital. I've been there myself. He trained under the late Dr. Michael Lesh, who was a colleague of mine, dear colleague of mine, when uh, I was a junior attending. He went on to do his pulmonary critical care fellowship at Beth Israel, New York, and has really had an outstanding career along the lines of uh, received his uh, master's degree in um, uh, in the uh, population uh, sciences. And Dr. Corey is far and away, I think, probably the most recognized leader on the early treatment of COVID-19 and why it's so important to the inpatient realm of care. And he's been fighting COVID-19 for two years. Uh, but I've asked him to come on the program uh, to give us a quick introduction to FLCCC and then uh, give us his viewpoints on where we are in the vaccine program and uh, the tremendous influence that the pharmaceutical industry has had. So Pierre, welcome to the McCullough Report. Oh, Peter, thanks. It's nice to chat with you again. And that introduction was not fair. You were too humble because you we're in your shadow, Peter. Come on, man. You, you've been ahead on early treatment, ahead of the whole country. And, uh, you know, we, we came up uh, maybe a little bit louder in some circles, but, uh, you know, Listen, we're all in this together, and I just appreciate being here talking to you. Well, you, you've uh, focused on, and rightly so, uh, almost certainly on one of the most diverse drugs in terms of its range of action through the continuum of disease, and that's ivermectin. Everyone knows about it. We've had tremendous interviews on ivermectin from many experts, including your uh, partner, uh, Paul Merrick. Um, but tell us a little bit about FLCCC. What does it stand for, and and, yeah. and and what does it do? How does it help people? Yeah, so the FLCCC, so the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, and, you know, we were the FLCCC before we had that name, and this is how we, you know, it's just an organic uh, development. It was just a natural response. It's almost like what you did, Peter, when you saw this thing coming, and you were like, hey, we got we to gotta treat this thing. We got to figure out how to treat this thing, and so we were doing the same thing, uh, you know, where we were. We were spread around the country. And so what happened was, I mean, from day one, Paul and I, you know, we were close friends. We just started talking. And Paul's good friends with the other guys in the FLCCC. So it's Umberto Maduri, Joseph Verone, and Jose Iglesias. You know, Jose was a former fellow. Joe Verone edits some journals, very well known in our specialty of critical care. We're all sort of very well known in our critical care specialty. And we just started talking and exchanging papers, reading, talking to doctors around the world. Like Humberto was talking to the guys getting hit in Lombardy. You know, as you just mentioned, I trained in New York City in multiple hospitals. My wife, who's also a physician, trained in multiple hospitals. And I taught ultrasound throughout the country. So I knew people everywhere. And, and we just, we talked to everyone and we read everything. And we just tried to figure out how to treat this. And then a couple of well-known doctors, it was kind of weird, one from the East Coast, one from the West Coast, one from San Fran, one from New York, reached out to Paul because Paul's like the most famous guy in our specialty. And they said, and he's known for his protocols for treating like sepsis and severe illnesses. And they said, Hey, why don't you like put together a protocol and share it with people? And Paul was already kind of doing that on his own, but he invited us. And like these, these guys like set up zooms, by the way, Peter, you remember when like 
you didn't know what a Zoom was? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> like my first Zoom, I was like, what is this thing? You know, and now it's like the only thing that we talk to each other on. But, um, you know, we started putting together Zooms and and we started hashing out a protocol. And 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 that's why, like, your introduction was so nice. But I, I want to make, make it clear. And you know this story, Peter. Like, while you were figuring out early treatment, we were buried in the ICU with patients landing on ventilators and just filling ICUs. And we were trying to figure out how to save them on the backside. And, and as we know now, that's not where you save patients. I mean, you got to get them early. But so, and you know, so we were most well known for our first protocol, which is called the Math Plus protocol, which really centered on a, a combination, synergistic, very aggressive um, uh, protocol to treat those who are critically ill in the ICU. And, and we got sort of interested, you know, Paul always had a, an early treatment protocol, but he didn't have hydroxychloroquine on it because we were being, you know, fooled by the journals and, uh, and which I've admitted to you and Harvey that like we got it wrong. Um, but so, but when ivermectin came around, um, when we started to see the data signal around that, we were shocked. And then when we started using it, I mean, I was just blown away at how effective it was. And then we started with our early treatment protocol. And so to answer your question, like, you know, we were, we were trying to be known for our hospital protocol. And then once we got the early treatment, and then as you know, you know, those, those testimonies that we gave, um, you were attacked roundlessly for the hydroxychloroquine advocacy. And I was attacked for ivermectin, but that video happened to have gone viral. And although I was attacked by, you know, our, our fellow academics, Peter, right, um, the people heard heard that viral video and they're like, wait, there's a doctor who's talking about something that works. And the word kind of spread, you know, and, and like, you know, I always have to be I always like to remind people, I'm not just Dr. Ivermectin. Our protocols have combination therapies. You know, all the effective therapies. You also have always argued for, you know, multimodality combination therapy protocol. But, you know, the, the two sort of the ones that carry the most water, the most effective early on are ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. But, so, but PR, you, a lot of the audience don't know uh, that you actually originally testified in the U.S. Senate early yep. in 2020 on corticosteroids. And, yep. uh, you know, you received pushback on that. Oh my gosh, Peter. So, you know, uh, Umberto Maduri, so one of the original five FLCCC critical care docs, he's literally the world expert on the use of corticosteroids in lung disease. Literally the world expert. He's been publishing on it for 30 years. And and he wrote this great review paper um, already in March of 2020, arguing for the critical need for corticosteroids. And I knew it was necessary for other reasons. We knew it worked in ARDS. I had recognized that this disease was actually an organizing pneumonia, what it used to be called BOOP. Um, th this virus was actually causing like a rapidly fulminant like BOOP or organizing pneumonia syndrome. And so we knew like 10 ways from Sunday that corticosteroids were life-saving. And, and I gotta, I gotta point this out too, Peter, and you know this, like we also knew from, if you'll believe it, social media, you know, there started to be posts coming out from guys in Detroit and new Orleans, places that were getting hard hit. They couldn't get people off ventilators and they started tweeting anonymously. They were like, give them steroids. If they're hypoxic, you know, bad chest x-ray steroids, ventilator steroids. And they were all like arguing that, if you do it, suddenly you can get people off ventilators, you can keep them off ventilators, and you can get them out of the hospital. And so when I testified, um, I was lucky enough to be asked to testify early on in May of 2020. 
And I came out with a very vocal opinion that went against every national and, and international healthcare society. And you're right. After that testimony, are you kidding me? I was still a faculty member at the University of Wisconsin. They harassed me for weeks trying to get me not to talk to the press anymore and not to say my opinions anymore, which, as you know, Peter, one of the core responsibilities as a professor in medicine or in any university, you're responsible for sharing your insights and expertise to society. It's not about keeping quiet. And so from early on, there was this there was this push to conformity and sticking with what everybody else was doing. And if you did something different, they wanted you to shut up, right? Fact, yeah, you're right. Medical schools actually have a mission yes. to produce new knowledge and disseminate it to the community. That is their mission. Now, when you showed up December 8th of 2020 on the floor of the U.S. Senate uh, and everyone in America was watching this on TV, you showed up in your lab coat. Yeah. And you sat down and you were on fire. And yep. I think that will go down in history as one of the most impassioned, uh, the most sincere uh, and the most charged uh, sets of words ever emitted by a doctor oh, on the Senate floor. I got to tell you, it was amazing. And one of, the, one of the things you told Americans is you told them about the racial inequity. Give our yeah. listeners a, 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 a viewpoint. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, let me talk about that video because it's a little bit of a flu, Peter. You know, I, I, I don't want to talk politics, but I'm like sort of a, I, I was ensconced in you know, Northeast blue country, you know, New York City liberal. You know, I always voted Democrat. And here I am in the Senate. And I'm honored to testify. I'm honored to share my expertise. And, and what happened with that impassioned speech is, is I got, I got like, I have a little bit of a temper and I was, I got offended. And I think that fired me up and it led to, it was like a kind of a perfect storm, but you know, it was my own party, so to speak at the time. I don't have a party now, but at the time, you know, the, the, the ranking member who was who a Democrat he basically offended all of us there asked to testify by Johnson. He delegitimized de us. And he said that we were, you know, we were, we were playing a political angle. And I thought it was the most outlandish station I ever heard about me. I was like, I, I don't do politics. And, and, and it just got me angry. And I just fired off that testimony, but, but you're right. You know, I did talk about the racial inequity because, you know, we, we were talking about before, like, you know, we, you know, not only that traditionally and for very good reason, right, disadvantaged minorities are very skeptical of vaccines and new treatments, right, because of some of the history of experimentation. And, and so they're cautiously wary. We knew that vaccines weren't, weren't going to come out or come around yet. And, and, and they, I mean, when I was in New York, right? So I left the University of Wisconsin. I actually took like a, what I call the humanitarian leave because I left. And just so you know this, Peter, you know, when I left my first job, I actually left because I was the chief of the critical care service. And I was trying to advocate for, get this, get this crazy stuff, Peter. I was advocating for corticosteroids and anticoagulation. And I was getting real pushback from my chief and my chair and the dean through them. They wanted us to follow the guidelines. You know what the guidelines were? Supportive care only. Fluids, Tylenol, oxygen, ventilator. And I said, I refuse to watch these patients die at this rate. I, I, I refuse to remain a chief 
if you're going to tell me that I can't practice medicine, do what I think is right. And I asked for a leave and I went to New York because they were dying for docs. And I know New York. New York's a lot more free, at least then. Now the whole country is kind of sideways. But at that time, when I went back to New York to fight on the, 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 the real front lines that were getting crushed, um, I, I was doing our protocol. I could do whatever I wanted. And, and I was helping patients. And, and, you know, it was great when I went back to New York. Um, were, you, were you using ivermectin inpatient at that time? No, no. So, Peter, ivermectin, it was on our radar. So what, what Paul did from the beginning is he had this little chart. It was almost like a, um, uh, how should I say, like a, a monitoring board. And on like the left column, he had all the potential medicines that we were discovering through reading papers that had either, either theoretic, uh, biologic rationale and or some encouraging data. And so we, we kept a running sort of scorecard of the data coming out around different therapies. There were some that we didn't believe in from the beginning, like convalescent plasma, we knew that was nonsense. Um, and But we would keep track of the data. And we had ivermectin on there for about eight months with a question mark, a question mark, until October of 2020, right? A full, you know, maybe eight months into the pandemic when... It just like the first like four or five or six trials, observational randomized, came out with these large magnitude benefits from different centers and 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 countries around the world. And we hadn't seen that kind of consistency and magnitude of, of benefit in anything, you know, and, and we were really impressed. And Paul called it from October 15th. He said, this could be the solution to the pandemic. And then that's when I wrote my review paper. But no, ivermectin was not in my protocol or any of our protocols until way later. So when we talk about like the steroids and blood thinners and why I left the University of Wisconsin um, and went to New York, uh, that's what happened. So I, I went to New York and I, I you know, I was using my our math plus protocol there, almost all of which every single thing that was in our original math plus protocol stays there. It's been validated. We've added a few things since, but, um, but wasn't but it when, when the, in the December 8th testimony, the other a person I had suggested to Senator Johnson is uh, Dr. Jean-Jacques Roster from uh, Florida. And he had published and the icon study in chess. He was there. Yeah. He, and, and, and he testified. Right. And as I recall, the ICON study actually in Americans did use ivermectin inpatient. Is that right? Exactly. So, so that's a fair question you asked me because no, I didn't use ivermectin. I didn't even know about ivermectin in March or April of 2020. Whereas Jean-Jacques, I mean, maybe because I think maybe in South America or in Central America, we write a lot of people in, in Mexico are from there uh, or in Miami are coming from there. Maybe it was a more known medicine and he had heard some encouraging data, but you know, he's another bold clinician. He's trying to help these patients and he started using ivermectin. And when he looked back to see who got ivermectin, and who didn't, I mean, it was striking the results, you know, that study. And, and somehow Peter, he got that published in a quite high impact journal, right? Yeah, Chest. Yeah. I've published in chess multiple times and yeah, I have too. Yeah. And, and the, the audience should know, you know, there is a uh, American college of chess physicians. Chest is considered one of the top ranked uh, pulmonary and thoracic disease journals, you know, both surgeons and medical doctors published there and Jean-Jacques published there and no one ever challenged the ICON study. And, and we know that the ICON study wasn't randomized, uh, but you've pointed out under U.S. Senate testimony that the Cochrane analysis and many other analyses suggest that when you have a whole variety of consistent observational studies, 
it's extremely unlikely that a randomized trial would lead to any different conclusion. In fact, when they're done, they almost always lead to the same conclusion. Exactly. And from, Peter, you know that point, no matter how much you and I hammer that point, you know, the this evidence-based medicine construct, which holds the randomized controlled trial way above any other trial, it, it's damaging because we can get to good observational data a lot quicker, a lot faster uh, then you can do these big, you know, highly funded trials. And well, well, since we're, we're talking about the development, I do have to say when we were putting together uh, the first uh, treatment paper that we published in American Journal of Medicine, I remember uh, sitting down, putting pen to paper in late May and then through June. Um, and we submitted it July 1. I remember getting towards the holidays. I wanted to get it submitted and took a month yeah. to, to make it through. It was published August 7th, which is when I look back on that, it was a miracle that we got into American Journal of Medicine. But um, uh, I remember John McKinnon, who's an infectious disease doctor at Henry Ford. Uh, I remember John messaging me. He goes, you know what? He goes, uh, I think it was just when I was submitted. He goes, I wish we would have put ivermectin in our paper. I don't know if you know, like what the origin story of ivermectin, like where the first place, this is, this is my understanding of the history of ivermectin and COVID, but here's two things that happened. So do you know who Juan Chimie is? No. So Juan is the guy, he probably, he's most known on Twitter, but from April of 2020, he's a, he's a business data analyst, but he's from South America. And he would talk to his friends down there and they would tell him about ivermectin. And he started looking at case counts and deaths. And he started doing these epidemiologic analyses and he would tweet them all over. But I mean, he got kicked off of Twitter like, you know, four times he had to keep coming back. They keep killing him. But for a year, they let him alone. And his graphs and analyses where he showed in cities and places where they had these ivermectin distribution campaigns, the cases and deaths plummeted. And he's been doing that all over the world. He has he has dozens of analyses. So he's well known for that. But another uh, man, I can't say his name, but he's a very wealthy, um, he owns a, a huge national company. And his He's done a lot of sort of mission work in Peru. And he was hearing from his colleagues or pastors and whatnot in, in his ministry that in Iquitos, Peru, very early on, they tried ivermectin. And in that city, they knew like the word on the street was that if you took ivermectin, you didn't die. And that city did phenomenally well. Nobody was dying. Everybody was taking ivermectin. And, and actually, that person I'm t telling you about, he gave us, he was the first significant donor to us. Because when we came out publicly and started to put forth, you know, with our credibility and to put out a review paper and, and form this organization, he knew, he already knew, he'd been taking ivermectin. This is a businessman in the United States. Um, he'd been taking ivermectin since June of 2020 as a prophylactic. And, and when we, we came out publicly in kind of November, December, that's when he came and he supported us. But he, he'd already known. And he'd been passing out ivermectin to his company employees, to everybody he knew since June of 2020. And this is a businessman with a, with a deep interest in medicine. He's actually very well read. And he's, he's, he said he would have been a doctor if he didn't go into business. But anyway, it, it was really interesting learning about the history. Like He heard about it from Iquitos. And so did Juan Chimie. It was all coming from Iquitos. They learned very, very early on that, that ivermectin was. Is it just an interesting kind of, you know, sort of origin story of where ivermectin first started being used and, and known to be effective? Now, Pierre, you can't keep a good drug down. And, um, uh, but, but the uh, beginning of September of 2021, 
the American Medical Association launched a campaign to abolish the use of ivermectin, abolish yep. the use. And the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons shot over a cease and desist letter on that. And the AMA was uh, uh, promoting what's called misinformation on ivermectin. Uh, and, and so th that raised everybody's uh, awareness that there is overt and official, officially stated suppression of early treatment by the same organizations that are uh, massively and, and uh, with no prohibitions uh, promoting the vaccines. And I I've said for a long time now that the suppression of early treatment is linked to vaccine promotion. Now take it from here because uh, you've said some uh, some sharp words about uh, about pharmaceutical profit yeah. motives here, and 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 how does this all play into what's happened in the landscape? You know, COVID is is largely now going down in the United States. Now yeah. it's going going up again in China and East Asia, but it's down in the United States uh, for a while here. So we have a little bit of a breather. What yeah. is going on with this big pharma takeover of medicine? Peter, you know me, I, I call it like I see it. And, and before I call it like I see it, I like to, I always try to humble myself. When I started out just trying to figure out this disease, you know, I've, I've read my whole life. I've read novels. I've read tons of stuff. I get that there's corruption. Corruption is endemic in some societies and some societies it's more. And I knew there was pharmaceutical influences in medicine. I just didn't know the depth and the degree and really the depravity of it. And, and that's what I've been had. I've been forced to have a front row seat to. Right. So so when I came out talking about ivermectin and when I uploaded my my review paper, which concluded that ivermectin should be globally and systematically deployed in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. I didn't know, Peter that I had literally jumped into the middle of a war on repurposed drugs, which has been going on for decades, right? Repurposed drugs, right? These are drugs that have already been approved. They're generally generic. They're generally off patent. Almost all of them are off patent. And they are anathema to the pharmaceutical industry. In fact, the pharmaceutical industry has built up tactics over decades, right? Their whole business model is they develop a drug, Presumably it works. <laughs> it's used for six, seven years. They lose patent. And then what they do, they bring up a new drug and they attack the old one. Everybody wants the shinier new thing. And they're really good at selling that shinier new thing. And, and the potential, the profit potential of early treatment when a global pandemic, I mean, can you imagine the market they're looking at, Peter? And this is, and I just like start out before we talk about the pharmaceutical industry in COVID. I like to talk about its past. It is a proven criminal enterprise, right? If you look at the last 20 largest settlements by pharmaceutical companies, it's 13 billion in civil settlements, it's 6 billion in criminal fines, and those 20 settlements encompass every major player in the industry. And what are those criminal fines for? They do it repeatedly. They bury adverse effects of medicines. They're really good at that. They push stuff out into the market, which actually kills people, right? You know, you're a cardiologist, Peter. You know the Avandi, the Vioxes, the Bextras, all of that stuff that caused heart attacks and early deaths. And, and many tens of thousands in each one of those drug launches died until they got busted. Stop. And, and we can get into the vaccines. They did it again with the vaccines, but but they also suppress early treatment. So I didn't know when I when I became like almost like a public figure advocating for Ivermectin. I didn't know that I was up against 
I mean, I'm up against what a billion trillion dollar industry. I mean, it, it they have to destroy repurposed drugs, and it gets really ominous because. Peter, I don't know if you've been following what's been going on, what we've discovered with the ivermectin corruption in the last few weeks, but there's been actually some major, major insights and developments that are mind-blowing. And so, you know, what I discovered is, so remember you just talked about how you submitted your paper, and you know, before July 4th, after my testimony December 8th, I found a journal that was doing an issue on repurposed drugs. And I wanted to submit to them. I reached out to the editor or the editor reached out to me or we were put in touch together. And by the way, Peter, you know who that editor was? No. You know who it was. The no. editor of the special issue of Frontiers in Pharmacology who asked the, the, the journal, can we do a special issue on this, uh, on this? You know who the editor was? It was Robert Malone. Oh, my Lord. So me and Robert go back to December of 2020. Like I reached out to him email. I was like, hey, I have this paper. I hear you have this. You're editing a special issue. Can I submit? And he was like, absolutely submit. And I was like, listen, just assure me that you can get the peer reviewers to be efficient in their peer review because people are dying. You remember what December of 2020 oh, yeah. uh, was? In I mean, that, that was massive, right? And so... So me and Robert go back to then. And, and, and what's really funny is Robert was not a public figure then. In fact, I was getting so much flack on the public side. And you know how Robert, he's so wise. He's been around for so many decades. He's so smart. And I, I remember one day, and I always tell this story. You probably heard me tell this story. But I always, I always say this. One day I was talking to Robert. Because Robert was kind of counseling me. You know, he's kind of mentoring me. And I, and I was like, Robert, you know, you, you know all this stuff. Like, why aren't you out here with me, you know, talking about this stuff? And he goes to me, he goes, if they can't see you, they can't shoot you. Mm. <laughs> and then, and then I'll just fast forward to finish the story. But, you know, after this whole debacle happened with my paper, four months later, I start seeing this guy named Robert Malone in the news. And he is, he's the talking about vaccines, he's getting killed for it. Like the entire world is against him. And I was like, wait a second, isn't that the same man who told me if they can't see you, they can't shoot you? You know, Robert stepped up and he spoke publicly when he had to. And, and you know, so I, and we all appreciate him for that. But anyways, so, so my paper, so the first things that I knew about the corruption is Robert chose, you know, he's been in governmental health care with Department of Defense for decades. He's a pandemic response expert, a vaccine developer, right? And he got three senior governmental scientists and it was a rigorous peer review. You know, they tore apart my paper and I had to do three rounds, but it was finally accepted for, for, uh, for publication. And they slow walked it. They wouldn't publish it. And my abstract, which they posted, was the most viewed abstract in the history of the journal. And I kept saying, why aren't you publishing? The world is dying. We're seeing just millions of deaths around the world. And suddenly, the lead editor of the journals, Frontiers, right, because it's a collection of journals, talked to Robert and said, we're retracting the paper. Wow. Hey, Peter, have you ever heard of a peer-reviewed paper that got retracted? Well, I, without without fraud or plagiarism. Well, you know, they they most contracts it happened say, to you, Peter. It happened to you. I know it happened to me. But most contracts say unless they find something that's scientifically invalid, they can't retract it. So, you know, retractions for something that's not scientific. Um, those are basically breach of contract. And really what's called illegally is called tortuous interference with yeah. the business of disseminating scientific information. And that's what's happening to me and Jessica Rose 
in current problems of cardiology. Exactly. We're, we're, we're having to sue the, the world's largest uh, editor. But what you're telling us, it sounds like, is that the pharmaceutical corruption extends deep into the um, peer-reviewed scientific They own journals. the journals, Peter. So if you look at, let's, let's use the vaccines as an example. I mean, can you publish a paper categorizing, qualitatively analyzing, or quantitatively analyzing the deaths associated? You can't publish that paper, right? I mean, you barely got your myocarditis paper, and it got whacked. Um, I mean, when I see what ivermectin, when you look at my paper, so my paper got retracted, and the lead editor of All of Frontiers told Robert that he had, uh, because there were complaints about my paper, complaints, I'm, I'm using air quotes right now, um, complaints about my paper, he had he contacted a third-party peer reviewer, anonymous, who reviewed the paper and disagreed with its conclusions and voted for a retraction. This is over three senior governmental scientists who had already peer-reviewed the paper. So some anonymous, shadowy peer reviewer suddenly says, whack the paper. I mean, it's absurd, Peter. It's absurd. And so, and we never got to see the peer review. We were just told of the retraction. And at the same time that happened, Tess Laurie, who's an expert systematic review and meta-analysis, she had done the same thing on ivermectin. And you know what? She passed peer review at the, at the Lancet Respiratory Diseases. Past peer review. And you know what letter she received? The editors wrote to her and said, although the peer reviews, yours, reviewers have accepted your paper, we do not feel this is fit for publication at this time. The evidence is uncertain. And so they rejected her it paper. It was clear from the very beginning. I think things started out okay, uh, but it was clear a few months into 2020, there was going to be a strong bias against any forms of, of treatment um, as we stand purpose, here. Not, not treatment. Remember, Paxlova and Molnupiravir, they sail through and they're being kind of solicited the union address. That was a Pfizer commercial. I know, but I, um, you know, I summarized at the DC mandates on uh, rally that, uh, you know, we have about 200,000 papers on COVID-19. Uh, we have 25,000 on vaccines. We only have 1,400 on treatment. Yeah. So, so, and this all treatment. So I can tell you, among the treatment, I agree with you. The, the, Peter, the, let, me, let me ask you a question. How many papers are on long-haul treatment? Uh, I'm not aware of any. <laughs> exactly. I don't even know if there's any, because there's a lot of us who are now mired, you know, as the cases go down, you know, I started a practice recently, and I'm treating, you know, the post-vaccine syndromes in long-haul. And, like, you know, all of my knowledge comes from collaboration, interaction, and discussion with all those others who are trying to help these long haul patients. But, and there's, there, there are definitely a lot of papers on long haul, but there's none on treatment. It's just like you yeah, said. Yeah. So it's there's hard. been a lot of descriptive papers, people describing things, yeah, exactly, but, but not much. And um, uh, somehow the oblivion on treatment for COVID-19 continues. It clearly, it continues for long haul and now vaccine injury. Pierre, we're, we're going to close this segment. Do you have any final words for our audience? I'm going to have to come back and, and really go through the vaccines, but I think we covered uh, therapy and yeah, just I'm the just developmental insights. That, you know, you've known it longer than we have. Um, we know that these repurposed drugs work. They're effective. The problem is, is that, again, I, it's like I said, there's a war on repurposed drugs it is actually part of the business model of the pharmaceutical industry. And the way in which they wage that war is via information. They distort and suppress information. So they prevent pub, you know, uh, publications supporting the efficacy from reaching journals. 
And they really corrupt the media, right? The horse dewormer campaign, the FDA tweet, you know, making it seem like an outlandish, crazy idea to use this medicine. I mean, they've literally, you know, used propaganda and censorship. Come on, Peter. YouTube, right, and Twitter and LinkedIn, they will not allow you to talk about ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. These are two effective drugs. And so it, it's all I can say is the tools in which they wage that war have never been more powerful. They have immense powers of propaganda and censorship. And that has led to the death of millions. And that's been my message for months. I, I, I've had it and I'm going to speak up about it. I'm going to do that for the rest of until until this truth is known by all. Well, I tell you, neither one of us are going to stop until this thing is done. Pierre exactly. Corey, thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thanks, Peter. Great talking to you. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is McCullough Report. <laughs>